Well, it's good to be with you. As Dennis said, if you have questions or comments, feel free. I kind of get lost in what I'm doing, so you have to kind of interrupt me. Well, I'm going to give you a little introduction today in the topic of science and scripture. And this is a it's an area that I think is very, very important, particularly for young people that are being trained in the sciences. Our culture has a very, very high opinion of science. In fact, our culture is kind of schizophrenic in that it really doesn't believe in absolute truth. Postmodernism has kind of taken over a lot of the thinking of people, so there's no such thing as really absolute truth. And yet, on the other hand, a lot of people, if they think that there is absolute truth, then uh, you look to the sciences to find it. And I want to kind of dispel some of those myths and ideas that are not biblical. And some people think that, in fact, Keely was mentioning that in one of her classes, the question that was raised concerning the Bible and science and according to her teacher, what she say, that that uh, science and religion are opposing to each other. Okay, so that's another area, and this is pretty common. In other words, a lot of people believe that science has disproven the Bible. And in fact, you have no science without absolute truth. You have no science without the reality of what God has revealed in His Word. So I believe this is a very important topic in our culture, and it's good to know these things, because a lot of people, in fact, it's an opportunity to kind of open a door to get eventually to the gospel, so it's an area of apologetics that you can use to reach people for Jesus Christ. So tonight I want to just give you an introduction to what we're talking about here, and we're planning at least three more, I don't know, at least three more. And I'll talk a little bit about, more about that as we get into it. So we start with Genesis 1-1. And our culture pretty much disregards all of the Bible, and particularly Genesis 1-1, God is creator. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is every much a scientific statement as anything that you'll find in any physics, chemistry, biology book. That is a scientific statement. Science deals with time, it deals with energy, it deals with matter, it deals with processes. You have all of that in Genesis 1-1. So the Bible begins by stating a series of facts, or at least a major fact, that in fact is scientific. Now the Bible is not a textbook of science, but it does make statements such as in the beginning... Bereshit, first word, time, in the beginning. In fact, this is the beginning of time. So we're talking about time. We're dealing with creation. That's a process. You're dealing with an agent of creation. That's God himself. You're dealing with the object of these processes, the heavens and the earth. It's a merism or a Hebrew way of communicating universe. So a significant statement that we have to start at the very beginning. Bible. So the Bible does deal with scientific issues. In fact, you'll be surprised at how many places the Bible makes statements 
that have more than just implications. In fact, they're statements of facts that deal with the natural realm. And one of the very first statements of the Bible deals with that. So I'm going to give you a little introduction to an area of what's called creation science. Creation science. Evolution is not science. Amen. Thank you. (laughs) Evolution is a theological position. In fact, uh, next week I'm going to show that it has very little, if any, scientific support. It's the Bible that has more scientific support and the statements, like in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and other statements, there's more support from science for those statements. In fact, we get science from the Bible. We'll talk. So I'm just going to give you an introduction today. And in this first slide, I'm going to give you everything that I'm going to do in this whole series. So if you don't get anything else... Get this slide, and then you can leave, and then we'll go. Right? So this is the essence of what I'm going to try to present to you. It's based on a couple of, you might say, assumptions, but they're more than assumptions because they have a lot of actual data that supports these ideas. First of all, if God is, in fact, creator, and our culture obviously denies that, substitutes evolution or naturalistic ideas. But if in fact God is the creator, then everything in the natural realm, God has put together. In other words, he's the creator. Everything that you can see in the natural realm. In other words, everything that science deals with is as a result of the hand of God, as a result of God's creative work. And if it's as a result of his creative work, then that has very significant implications in the whole area of not only science, but every area of thinking. Secondly, God is revealer. And if in fact God has revealed himself, we believe that he's revealed himself in an inspired document, 66 books we call the Bible. And from this word, if in fact it is inspired... And I believe that it is also inerrant. In other words, it has no errors, and it is the absolute authority without error. And theologians today are a little bit intimidated by science, and some of them will say that, well, I believe in inerrancy, but I believe that the Bible is inerrant when it deals with doctrine or theology or spiritual things, but not necessarily when it deals with history not necessarily when it deals with science. Well, I believe in full inerrancy. I believe that the Bible is inerrant in everything that it deals with, and it deals with every area of life, every area of thought, every area of of study, including science, and particularly, and in fact you might even say in large measure, science itself. So that is the inerrancy that I believe. And if so, if God is revealer, if he has revealed himself in an inerrant way, and when he makes statements in that word that touch on that natural realm, then they are actually more solid or have more basis, you might say, than anything that we might come up with from either the area 
of science or the area of philosophy or any area of thinking. So, if God is the creator of all things, and we're going to try and demonstrate that there's more scientific evidence that points to an intelligent designer, at least. And we believe that intelligent designer is the God who is described in the Bible because he was the creator. So if God is the creator of all things, and if he has revealed himself in an inerrant way, then we can come to the conclusion that there has to be a unity between true science, and I add the word true because there's a lot of things in science that is not necessarily true. For example, the whole idea of evolution. It's a huge lie. So there's a unity between true science and scripture. And the more we study in the sciences, historically, the more that we've discovered as a result of thinking and scientific endeavor, the more we see a unity or a harmony between the area of science and the area of what the Bible speaks of in terms of statements like Genesis 1.1. Make sense? So that's the essence of everything I'm going to try to demonstrate, is that unity and that consistency, and I'm going to take it even a step further, I think we need to go to Scripture first. And I'm going to use a couple of examples, a couple of men from here. One of them was a scientist at Sandy National Labs. Another one was a scientist. They both retired, but they were both scientists. One of Los Alamos National Labs. They began their research by pouring over the Scriptures to see what the scriptures have to say about the particular area they are studying. That's their starting point, because it sets the parameters for everything else. And it'll close the doors to areas of research that are futile, that, in other words, they're, they're dead ends. So we start with scriptures. So we'll go even beyond just this unity and emphasize that really scripture is the authority when it comes to science as well. And this is important to teach young people, and too bad that a lot of schools don't do that, even Christian schools, even Christian seminaries and Bible colleges don't do that. So I think this is a very important area. Some of the presuppositions, I think you've already gathered some of them. There is a non-material realm, just so you know where I'm coming from. The materialistic mindset says basically that there's only one realm, the material realm, that's all there is. You die, they put you in the grave, you become plant food. That's all there is. We believe that there's a realm, in fact, more significant than the material realm, there's a spiritual realm. It is unseen, but it's just as real, in fact, more real, more substantial, more lasting, it's eternal. There's a non-material realm, and this is very significant when it comes to science as well. We'll get into that later. In that realm, there is a God that is described in the scriptures, and that God, in fact, not only exists, but has revealed himself so that we have a means of coming into a relationship with him and know something of his nature. And God has revealed himself, we've already talked about that, and God's word is inspired. All of those as well. These are some presuppositions. Presuppositions are things you can't prove, but they're starting points, they're things that you believe. And by the way, every scientist has presuppositions. 
In fact, if he's a materialist, he believes that there's only one realm. That's the starting point. The natural realm is all there is, but he starts there. And he omits the spiritual realm, and he omits God, but that's his starting point. And science is dominated by that way of thinking today. And what I'm going to give you just bits and pieces of is a biblical view of science, and I believe, therefore, a more accurate and you might even say, not that what I say is inspired, but based on what the inspired word says concerning uh, a foundation for science. I could give a whole talk on a biblical foundation for science that is different from what I would call a secular view of science. So those are the presuppositions. We're going to look at different areas. You don't need to jot these down. These are just kind of introductory we're going to talk a little bit about astronomy. We're going to talk about astrophysics because there's evidence in every one of these areas that give us evidence that God is the creator. And not only God is the creator, but God has done certain things in history that uh, some of these are denied by the secular world. We're going to talk about hydrodynamics. We're going to talk about thermodynamics. Now, you don't need a degree. How many of you have a technical background or scientific background? These are areas that we're going to touch on. Uh, I just emphasize this just so that you're kind of uh, awakened to the fact that the Bible speaks to all of these areas. In fact, one of the most fundamental laws of science, called the second law of thermodynamics, is described in some detail in the Bible. It doesn't use technical language, it doesn't use a formula, but it describes the second law, and there's others as well. We're going to talk about hydrology. That's an important area. We're going to talk about botany, genetics. In fact, one of the uh, one of the first sciences that is touched on. Well, I shouldn't even say first because we can go all the way back to Genesis two, and we have a statement relating to chemistry even. But an important area that we are just more recently discovering in the area of genetics. Genesis 1 speaks to that area of genetics. And I'll mention something like that to get to the proper place. Zoology as well. We have the beginning of zoology in Genesis 1. In fact, we begin with all of these sciences in Genesis 1. Anatomy, embryology. In fact, uh, the list goes on. These are just a few that I put together here. Geophysics, study of the earth. Tectonics deals with plates, continental plates. They move a little bit. You have an earthquake. I think there were some things that took place during the Genesis flood that were tectonic in nature. And that's a relatively new science as well. Orogeny. Anyone know what that is? What's the science of orogeny? Look at the picture. <laughs> Study mountains. Very good. Very good. We're going to talk about historical geology. We as believers don't have a major problem with geology overall. In fact, we don't have a major problem with many of the physical sciences in the observational realm. I'm going to make that distinction tonight as well. But we do have a problem with the whole area that's called historical geology. We talk about that. We talk about the Genesis flood. Okay. 
Anthropology. We have a major problem with secular anthropology. The Bible speaks to that in large measure. And paleontology. Anyone know what the study of paleontology is? I did this seminar for homeschoolers, and there was an eighth grade girl. No, she was oh, eight years old. Not eight grade. <laughs> third grade, right? I was explaining what paleontology is, and she said, well, why do they call it that? Why don't they just call it fossilology? So the rest of the seminar, we call it fossilology. <laughs> That's what it is. We fossils. We're going to deal with three areas. And next week, I want to focus on creation versus evolution. We have a major conflict as believers, and the Bible basically does not teach evolution. So we have a conflict in that whole area. And as I said, it's not science. Evolution is a theological position. It's a philosophical position. It's a worldview, but it's not science. In fact, there's very little scientific support for it. So we're going to look at the contrast, which is creation, which I believe is the reality. And that's what the Bible presents to us starting in Genesis 1 1. The following week, if everything short willing, if everything goes well, we're going to look at the Genesis flood versus that whole area of historical geology. Historical geology is an attempt to reconstruct ancient earth history, even prehistory, before mankind. From their perspective, millions and millions and even billions of years ago, what was the earth like? study of historical geology. We look at the layers. We're going to look at the layers as well, but we will interpret them differently because I think the evidence points in a different direction. In fact, it points to a relatively short time frame rather than a long billion, billions and billions of years. So we're going to look at the flood versus historical geology. There is overwhelming scientific evidence that supports a Genesis flood as described in the book of Genesis. The historical geologist, and most of geology today, would say there's no evidence for a Genesis flood. So what does the church do? Oh, okay, uh, I can't argue with science, I'm intimidated, I'm afraid to speak up. Maybe the flood that the Bible speaks of, I want to believe in the Bible, maybe it's just in Mesopotamia. The most popular view in the church is what's called a local flood theory or idea. In fact, that is the over overwhelming viewpoint of most of the churches, including evangelical, including Bible teaching churches, because they're unaware of the evidence that I can show you. I'm going to give you overwhelming evidence for a universal worldwide flood, just as described in the book of Genesis. The evidence is there. It's just that uh, the church doesn't make itself aware of what is available. That's why we're meeting here. That had the whole church in There's a third area that we'll deal with, and that deals with the issue of time. This is also kind of the overwhelming viewpoint of the culture is that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. Universe, they used to say 20. I don't know why it's shrinking. You get bigger, but the numbers I hear now are 14 billion, 16 billion in that frame. Well, is that 
the reality, and again, the church is intimidated, and most people within the church don't have an answer to that. I'm going to give you an answer because I believe if you read the Bible, it gives you the impression that the earth is relatively young. Now, when we say young, it's, it's really old, 6,000 years. I mean, that's a lot of years compared to us, but it's not billions of years. It's only a few thousand years rather than billions of years. And I'm going to give you both biblical and scientific evidence for a relatively young earth. So those are the four topics that we'll be dealing with tonight, just an introduction. Any questions? I mean, too complicated yet? No. It's cool. Cool. Too scientific? Yes. Let me know. The Bible does not discourage us from studying the area of science. Some people are fearful because the impression is science seems to go against what we believe. It goes against the idea of God as creator. Yes, some segments of science do that. But we're going to give an answer to that. But the Bible actually gives us evidence and it speaks to the areas of astrophysics and astronomy. And there's some direct statements that speak to the, these areas. For example, Psalm 19.1, The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Now, that's a word that someone speaks of space or astrophysics or astronomy, that whole area. And what the psalmist is saying, Psalm David, David is saying, if you can look out, and if you want to study astronomy, if you want to study the stars, you can see something that gives some idea of a magnificent, in fact, an awesome God. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And by the way, historically, modern science was started by Bible-believing Christians that took passages like this, and they said, if this is true, if I study astrophysics or astronomy, well, they didn't think that because they didn't exist then, but they thought, if I study the stars, I should be able to see something of God himself. Because when God created, he left his fingerprints all over the universe. And there's evidence of him. So when it speaks of the heavens telling, in other words, it's broadcasting, it's, it's making known. That's ideas, that's thinking. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament, that's space, if you will, is declaring, it's speaking, it's, it's communicating. Now, we won't read the following verses, but in verses 2, it, does, it says, you know, it's not using language or, or words, but it's communicating all the same. So if you study astrophysics, you ought to be able to see something of the Creator, just like the same so the firmament is declaring the work of his hands. God is creator. So there's this one passage that says, uh, study astrophysics. Don't be intimidated. And when you do that, do it with a proper attitude. In other words, do it with the viewpoint that I'm going to learn something about God himself. There's also evidence from zoology and ornithology. Anyone want to guess what ornithology is? <laughs> study of birds? Very good. You're learning science word. Okay. Notice what Job says in Job chapter 12, 7 through 8. He says, ask the beasts. Now, you know, this is poetic. 
And he's not saying, okay, go out there and if you have a cow in the backyard, start a conversation. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, in other words, if you study or if you look into this whole area of zoology, dealing with various kinds of animals, beasts here, let them teach you. In other words, you can learn certain things because built into that creation, God has put within it something that communicates something about himself. Okay? Let them teach you. In other words, you can learn. So if you study these areas, zoology, you can learn something of the handiwork of God. It says, and birds of the heavens. In other words, you can study ornithology as well. And you'll learn certain things. Let them tell you. In other words, they can instruct you. So you can study biology. You can study zoology. You can study ornithology. You can study the whole area of fish as well. Let the fish of the sea declare to you. In other words, there's communication already built into the creation. The scientist should be the very first one that recognizes that there there has to be a creator because he's studying the very fingerprints of the creator. But because we are hardened in heart, because we are depraved, because we are lost, we are blinded and we don't see that. The scientist is accountable to God in in order to, when he stands before him, God's going to say, I left all my fingerprints all over. You missed it. And they have not trusted in Jesus Christ. So you can study other areas as well, botany, etc. Geophysics, same passage, verse 8, or speak to the earth. Again, you don't go down to stop to the ground here. In other words, enter into a dialogue or a thought process or a study of uh, geophysics or geology. God has left his imprint in geophysics and geology as well. Let it teach you. That's the study of science. Okay? We study other areas related to geology, paleontology. We talk about orogeny, tectonics. You will add to that as well. So these are just a few statements. Also in that same passage, biology and genetics. In whose hand is the life, these are the life sciences, in whose hand is the life of every living thing, it's biology, and the breath of all mankind, and if you look at the micro level, genetics, Job 12.10, same context, same context of asking the beast, same context of speaking to the earth. You can learn from all of these areas of science. So study science with a view of learning something of the Creator. You can include all the other related sciences as well, embryology, etc. And then verse 9 in Job, same passage. Who among all these does not know? In other words, who among all of these areas of astrophysics, biology, zoology, ornithology, orogy, who amongst all of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In other words, there is a creator. And if you study the creation, you can come to that conclusion. And that's as solid a conclusion as a mathematical formula that you might formulate in your study of whatever science you're, you're dealing with. 
So who among all of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In other words, he is the creator. So we should not be intimidated by science. In fact, the more science we know, the better, the better equipped we'll be. But we view it from a different perspective. We view it from the perspective that God is, in fact, creator. So let's take a look here quickly, and on your outline sheet, that's a little more than two there. That's your little introduction so far. Let's talk about this area, because there is kind of a lot of confusion and also a lot of debate going on here concerning science and theology. Uh, we rely on science, we rely on theology, which, which has priority. Well, I believe if you put... Bible first, obviously that says theology, but looking at scripture, you're going to find that you have a good perspective on science as well. So there's not a conflict, even though within the culture, we're given the impression that there's a conflict between science and theology. So let's talk a little bit about the nature of origins in order to understand this relationship. And that way you can give an answer when somebody says, well, evolution is science, and the idea of creation, that's religion. So we don't want to teach religion in schools. We want to teach science. In other words, we want to teach evolution. Well, you can come back and use some of the things that we talked about here and say, no, no. We're talking about two opposing religions here. We're, po- we're talking about two opposing scientific perspectives here. Okay? So what is the nature, first of all, when we're talking about the beginnings of things, beginnings of all things, what are we talking about? So let's make that a little bit clearer. And here's where we want to distinguish between two major areas of science. And this is very, very important. In fact, I don't know if you, any of you remember not too long ago the debate between uh, Ken Ham and Bill, Bill Nye? Mm-hmm. Ken Ham kept back and he kept hammering this distinction and uh, Bill Nye just kept denying it <laughs> and because he denied it he was fuzzing up the whole argument and I think it was deliberate, I think he was trying to make it fuzzy if you make this distinction then it's going to help you to understand uh, what we're talking about when we're talking about the issues involved in origins in other words, things in the past so there is what is called observational science. Physics, chemistry, these are observational in general. Okay? You make observations in the present. That's important. We as believers have little problem with a lot of areas in observational science because you can come up with a theory, you can test it, And you can verify that your conclusions concerning those observations are close at least, or maybe you need to modify it, but you can test it. Others can come and test it. Christian can test it. An atheist can test it. You should come up with the same data. And in general, science is self-correcting, and it gives us reliable information. In fact, all of the technology that we enjoy, cell phones, computers, automobiles, whatever, is based on the conclusions of observational science. So it's pretty reliable. We have little conflict with those areas. There's also a whole area called historical science. 
Here is where we have major differences in the area of historical science. Okay? Kind of the illustration I've already mentioned. I gave you the illustration a while ago. We have very little differences, if you will, with the science of geology, because that is observational science. We have a major, in fact, a huge disagreement with the interpretation of the reconstructing of the history of the earth, the ancient history of the earth. That's an area of historical science. Make sense? You see the distinction? Historical science is dealing with events in the past. And an event occurs how many times? Once. <laughs> so you can't repeat it. Nor is there, there's no time machine. You can't go back and make more observations on that same event. So when you're trying to understand things that took place in the past, you're dealing with an area called historical science. Now the secularist tries to do what we try to do. The secularist attempts to reconstruct the past. In fact, there are some well-defined sciences today that is that are in the area of historical science. For example, the whole area of archaeology. It doesn't even have to be biblical archaeology. The whole area of biblical archaeology falls under this category of historical science. And what events leave behind, some more so than others, they leave behind traces of the past. That is all that we have to evaluate and to do science upon or whatever is left behind because you can't reproduce the event. Do you understand that? Is that clear? All that's left behind are the traces of an event. What is the most important trace of an event that can be left behind? I think it, that might be eyewitness accounts. Very good. And written. In other words, a written eyewitness account that leaves documentary evidence. So an archaeologist... The most important and most revealing information is if you can uncover documents or even inscriptions, written information. You can uncover pottery or arrowheads or bones or different pots and different things, walls, uh, architectural features. And he tries to reconstruct what was this culture like, what was this city like. And if he has a lot of data, he might be able, and if he's skilled, he might come to some good conclusions concerning what that Sumerian culture was like several centuries earlier. That's the area of historical science, so archaeology. There's a science today that uh, is practiced every day in criminology. In fact, there's some popular television CSI. That's historical science. In other words, it's reconstructing past events. Now, these are more recent events, but that's the whole idea. The more traces that you have of that event, the better will be the conclusions that you come to. If there are very scant traces, then it leaves the door open for a wider possibility of conclusions concerning what, what you're trying to reconstruct. Another area that we talk about is historical geology. That's this whole area of historical science. And all you can do is apply the principle of science to what is left behind. So 
if you have written documents, and if they're reliable, then that is most important. So, observations. We can't make observations concerning, concerning the origin of the universe. Nobody was there. Except one. <laughs> He's excluded from the scientific endeavor, but there was one that was there. The origin of the universe. Spontaneous generation. Is there anyone there that observed life coming about as a result of non-living matter or from non-living matter? No one was there. That's the basis of evolution. Nobody made that observation. It's a conclusion based on little data. It's based more on velocity. What about the progress of evolution from multi-cells to from one cell? In other words, one cell multiplying and becoming multi-cell cellular life. Well, that's the essence of evolution. Everything started from one cell life, quote, simple life forms. We'll talk about that. No such thing. And multi-cells all the way to mankind. Any observations on those? Has anyone ever observed? There has never been a documented observation of one species turning into another species. Or multi-cell life coming from one cell. One species to another. Just summarize that. These are all conclusions based on no data, no observations. Placement of the strata, when we're talking about historical geology, no one was there to observe. Well, there were some observations, and we have some data, but that also is excluded. This is admitted by evolutionists. Paul Ehrlich and Elsie Birch are evolutionists. Good scientists, but they're honest. And they say, our theory of evolution has become one which cannot be refuted by any possible observations. Because there's no one that ever observed it at any of those stages that I laid out in that car slide. So they admit it. It's a theory, one which cannot be refuted by any possible observations. It is thus outside of empirical science. And what he's doing is making that distinction. It's outside. This is another word for observational science. You could also call it empirical science. It's outside of it because you can't go back and observe it. See that? It deals with historical science. But, not necessarily false. <laughs> Alright? No one can think of, of ways in which to test it. It's these evolutionary ideas. But it has become part of an evolutionary what? Dogma? Sounds religious to me. Evolutionary dogma accepted by most of us as part of our training. In other words, what do we do? We believe it. We put our faith in it. We can't test it. We can't make observations. But we believe it. And there's other quotes. They believe it because of the alternative. The alternative is a creator that's too, too radical, too crazy, right? Just one statement. You can find lots of these in honest evolutionists and uh, others as well. So I'm not making this stuff up. If you wanted to demand a proof, you would have to ask the evolutionist, well, show me or give me some data that documents spontaneous generation. In other words, life coming about uh, do an experiment to see if you can produce it. Now, people have tried, but they're close. 
And if somebody could do that, well, maybe you might have a basis to believe in this idea of evolution. It doesn't exist. If you needed proof, this is what we would ask for. Or, show me where one species has evolved into a totally separate and distinct and different species. You need to go down the line and ask for other proofs as well. But, how do we prove our case? Well, we don't have a proof either. Ours is a faith, I'm going to show you later, ours is a faith position as well. It's a matter of which faith position has the most substance to it, has the most evidence that supports it. So they might ask us, and we might point to creative power that has been displayed. Now it's invisible, but there's going to come a time when it's going to be very, very visible. Every conversion of a heart is the action of a creative God. He's turned a depraved, dead heart, given it regeneration. Now people can't see that. They can see the evidence of it in the way that we live. That's creative power that isn't available to display. Your testimony, your conversion, is evidence of a creator that has displays creative power. There's going to be a future kingdom where Jesus Christ is going to reign, and he's going to perform certain things in that kingdom. In fact, even before that, every miracle of Christ is a creative act. Those are evidences, those are proofs. Not all of those are discarded in the same way. So really there's no proof. So that's the nature of origins. Did you want to take a break somewhere in the middle? Yeah, <laughs> stand up. So that's the nature of this whole area of study. It's based on a lot of assumptions. We have assumptions. We assume that there is a God. We assume that there's a realm that is outside the natural realm. We assume, now there's some good solid basis for believing that the Bible is inspired and inerrant. There's a lot of data that supports that idea. But we don't have absolute proof either. Neither does the evolutionist. He has no proof of this theory. It is simply a theory, and it's a bad theory. So the nature of origins is we're dealing with issues that took place in the past, creation or evolution. The Genesis flood or billions of years of sedimentation and earth processes, uh, which, which has better support for it. You can't recreate those events. That's the nature of the origins. So let's talk a little bit more about the nature of history because we're dealing basically with a study of historical events, events of the past. Some of these events that we're talking about are before even mankind, or before writing, or before records outside of Scripture. Okay. Well, we talked about historical data, and when we talk about historical data, these are the traces that are left behind an event. This is what we have available to study, whatever traces are left. In a crime scene, if you're trying to reconstruct a crime, blood spatters on a wall, bullet shells, maybe a fingerprints on the wall, something, that's the data. The better the data, the more abundant data you have, the more precise, if you can get some DNA, then uh, that 
you know, that's real good data. You put all that data together and you come to the conclusion, you did it. I've got your DNA. <laughs> but if you don't have it, if you don't have your data is very sketchy, then, you know, it's not going to hold up in court. Similarly, these traces, if you have an abundance of them, you might be able to come to some better conclusions. And if you have an inspired source of data, written documentation, survival is rejected. But if you have something like that, that is substantial. If it's inerrant, then it's pretty solid stuff. But we have more than that as well. So the data that is available to study are simply the traces left by the event. You can't go back and see the event. So a historical fact, we're not just talking about Bible things or things related to creation, but any historical fact, Abraham Lincoln, you believe he lived? Any of you meet him? Anyone see him? How do you know he lived? I'm sorry, why did Abraham went to high school? <laughs> she went to the high school named after Well, there's... Substantive traces left behind, lots of written documents, and there aren't people you can talk to anymore, they're all dead, but at one time you could probably talk to maybe people related or whatever. But anyway, historical fact, whatever traces are left, historical fact is that data, and this is very, very important, and this is true of all history, data plus interpretation, so I've got it in red. That is true of every history. In fact, there are different interpretations of Abraham Lincoln. If you read maybe a biography written by someone from the South, he might have a slightly different interpretation of the life of Abraham Lincoln than somebody that wrote from the North in the Civil War, right? They will take the same data, but they might interpret. So there's always this element when we're dealing with things that deal with the past. You need to keep this in mind because the evolutionist is dealing with lots of interpretation. In fact, many of the conclusions they come to concerning how different uh, creatures are related, they're what they call just stories. In other words, a narrative that they'll put together as to how this creature eventually turned into a different creature. It's just a story. It's the interpretation, because the data is not there. You have to add an interpretation to come up with the big theory of evolution. Make sense? This is true of what we do as well. One big difference is we add inspired data to all of the physical material data. So that's very important as well. Okay, so that's the difference there. So when we talk about observational science as opposed to historical science, science that's done in the present as opposed to historical events that have taken place in the past one time. Science, observational science, is repeatable. You can do another experiment after an experiment. Different people can do it. It doesn't matter who does it. If you put the same data in, or the same experiment in, then you should come to the same conclusion. Otherwise, maybe the theory, there's something wrong with the theory. It doesn't work. History, each of it is unique. 
unique. Science, based on observations, reconstructing of the history, based primarily on the interpretation of the traces. Highly subjective in this next thing here. Science tends to be more objective. It's not ultimately objective, because man cannot be. Only God is totally objective. But it tends to be more objective than historical science. Tends, historical is more subjective. Therefore, the more possibility uh, there. And what does Job say concerning this whole area? Job 34, or 38, 4. Where were you? This is God speaking. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? In other words, were you there? No. So you're utterly dependent on my description. That's what God said. And that's true of many of those ancient events in the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, so we have an observer that was there and has given us an inspired record of trust. We start to invite so that's the nature of history. So, another issue here in the issue of science versus theology. The naturalist, I've already mentioned, and let's talk a little bit more about that. The faith of the naturalist, or you might say the evolutionist, or the secularist, or however you want to put it. The unbeliever, you might say, he operates on a faith basis as well. He tries to give you the impression that everything he's talking about is based on science, but it's really based on faith. This is admitted by most scientists, most scientists will admit, that their starting point are certain assumptions that they put their faith in. And by the way, all of the assumptions that most, well, I shouldn't say all of them, but the ones that are true assumptions that the evolutionist puts his faith in are actually stolen from a biblical worldview. For example, he believes that there is consistency within the natural realm. Things are repeatable. In other words, you uh, if I drop this pen, it doesn't matter whether I'm here at Eastern Hills or whether I'm at home or on the other side of the world, if I do that, it's going to consistently drop to the ground because there's some natural realm laws of Nature that we call. By the way, when people say uh, laws of nature, ask them, well, who's the lawgiver? <laughs> There's a consistency. The point I'm making here is this is assumed in the sciences. It's believed. It's observable because if I did this somewhere else, it would happen in the same way, and I can come to some conclusions. I can measure the, the velocity and the acceleration and come to some numbers and come up with some formulas. There's consistency there. But, where does that consistency come from? It comes from somebody that built all that consistency in, is borrowed from a biblical worldview. But anyway, the point I'm making here is the evolutionist, yes, assumptions that he bases his science on, some of them that I just mentioned. So the naturalist believes that there's self-organization of matter. Matter organizes itself in such a way that non-living matter organizes to a point that it becomes living. And that's a faith position. It's a faith. It takes a lot more faith. Or our faith is puny compared to the evolutionary faith. And this is admitted, and you can come up with hundreds of these quotes. D.H. Scott, evolutionist. A new generation has grown up which knows not Darwin, 
Is even then evolution not a scientific, a certain fact? No. That's honesty. We must hold it as an act of faith because there is no alternative. <laughs> the last part's not true. There is an alternative, right? But the point being is they believe in evolution not based on scientific stuff, but they, they based because you, there's no observations there. But they believe it as an act. And I can give you lots of other quotes as well. In fact, I pulled from several quotes little descriptions of the idea or the theory of evolution. And notice all of these are related to a belief system. In other words, evolution, evolutionary dogma, we saw that one earlier, remember, an evolutionary dogma, that's a belief. Or it's also described as a satisfactory faith, in another quote that I've got. Man's worldview, worldview is something that you believe in. It's an all-prevailing process. Now, that's a faith statement. A metaphysical belief, that's another statement in a quotation. A grand view of life. A view of life, in other words, how, what do I believe about life? It's all described as a scientific religion. Wow, they're pretty overt in that quote. An illuminating light. That sounds almost biblical. Revealed truth. Revelation, right? The whole of reality. These are faith statements. The evolutionist believes in his theory based on faith. Okay? You all are probably familiar with the nursery tale. You probably read it as kids and read it to your kids as kids. Remember the beautiful princess? That she's looking for a uh, prince. And remember, she kisses a frog. Remember what happens when she kisses a frog? He turns into the prince. He turns into the beautiful prince. Okay. Now, the nursery tale, she kisses a frog, and instantaneously, poof, her beautiful prince. That's a nursery tale, right? Well, what's the difference between this? Just add 300 million years. <laughs> <laughs> now you add science. Okay. Right. So, Darwinism, evolutionary theory, naturalism is a faith position. Don't forget that. Press that point with an evolutionist. In fact, ask them. We're going to talk about this next week. Give me the evidence. I'm going to give you all of the evidence. Well, not all of it, but in categories, I'm going to give you the essence of what the evolutionist will give you. And I gave this at, uh, there's a creation organization, Creation Science Fellowship in New Mexico here. And I presented it to them. Many of them were in San Diego, a lot of scientists and engineers and that kind of type of stuff. And after I was done, I asked them, do you know of any other evidence that the evolutionist supplies? And after that talk, I said, no, that's basically, that's basically it. And where I demonstrate is that evidence is superficial. It's not real. So it's a faith position that evolutionists bow. So faith of the naturalist. Now, we admit that our position is a faith position as well. 
We can't recreate the original creation. We can't recreate a Genesis flood. We can't observe either one. So our position is a faith position. So the naturalist believes in self-organization of matter. The creationist believes that there's an intellect behind all of the order that you can observe in creation. In other words, there is the creator. Hebrews 11.3 tells us by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. It's by faith. So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. But notice things that were made or created. Ours is also a faith position. So the issue is which faith has more substance, which has more evidence, which has more support, which has a greater basis. And if you study the evolutionary position, it takes a lot more faith to believe in evolution. And it doesn't believe that there is a creator of all the order that you can observe in the universe Well, let's talk a little bit about finding truth. Finding truth. And what I want to contrast here, and I'm getting to the authority here, and I think this is very important as well, that you have confidence in where we're putting our faith and the authority of, of that. I'm going to contrast this idea of absolute truth, or scientific truth, rather. Scientific truth as opposed to absolute truth. Now, I've already said in the introduction that postmodernism says there's, there's really no truth, and if there is truth, then what is true to you may be different than what is true to me, and what is true to me may be different than what is true to you. So in reality, absolute truth doesn't exist. Then on the other hand, there are some in our culture that says, well, the closest that you can come to absolute truth is scientific truth, and that's not true. So let's contrast scientific truth. What is what are some of the elements of scientific truth? First of all, it attempts to be objective. But because it's done by mankind, it is never absolutely objective. There's always bias in scientific endeavor. Anything that man touches always has flaws in it. Science is a creation of mankind. It has a biblical basis, but man does the scientific it attempts to be objective. And I have a science background. That's my background, so I'm not against science. I'm not denigrating it. I just want to have a proper perspective on it, a biblical perspective. So I'm not trying to run science down. I want to just have a proper perspective on it. So it does attempt to be objective. And I would say that of anything that man has devised, the scientific method is perhaps the best way to come Close, closest to that that is true. But keep in mind it is always just an approximation of what is true. Because we never reach it because we're not totally objective. You hear a lot about global warming, global warming, it's settled science. Probably not. But the louder they speak about it, it kind of gives away that uh, there might be something wrong with it. It has become politicized. Science can become politicized. That's one example. There's several examples of 
sciences for themselves. And it gets it, takes it away. You mentioned science is done in the present. You can perform observations in the present. You can evaluate those observations. You revise your conclusions. In fact, some scientific laws have been abandoned because we have more data than observations. Scientific truth is done in the present. Scientific truth is not absolute truth. It's not absolute truth. There is absolute truth, but it's not scientific truth. Any scientist will admit that. In fact, here's just one statement from an evolutionist, George Gaylord Simpson, and he says essentially what I'm saying. The concept of truth in science is thus quite special. It implies nothing eternal, because scientific ideas change when you get more data. Sometimes we buy, sometimes it's abandoned. And he also says it implies nothing eternal and absolute. It's not absolute truth. But only a high degree of confidence after adequate self-testing and self-correcting. That's a good statement. That's a good observation, a good uh, conclusion. I would agree with that. When I'm making, it's not absolute truth. It's an approximation based on testing and self-correcting. And even that, we can... Sometimes revise. Einstein introduced a whole revolution in the whole area of thinking. Like uh, was Einsteinian theories that have kind of put Newtonian theories in a different perspective. So science basically changes. So it's not absolute, it's tentative. If you get more data, you might change your theory, you might abandon it altogether. And, in general, it's accepted by the community of scientists. After adequate testing, then we call things law. And when it reaches the status of law, that doesn't mean it's absolute, but it means that we have a very high degree and there's somewhat something that's accepted by the entire scientific community. The law of gravity, for example, the second law of thermodynamics, uh, laws of buoyancy, several things that have been verified and can be observed over and over and over again. Uh, the community, the scientific community, accepts them as law. But once they reach the status of law, some laws have been abandoned because we have more than we can actually. In science, consistency of data interpretation constitutes proof. Then the kicker is science is for man. Anyone know of uh, any scientist who does not have sin nature? Jesus. Good. <laughs> we'll put him down. <laughs> He's the only one. All scientists have a sin nature. Any scientist that's not depraved, any scientist that does not have any biases whatsoever. All scientists follow the second law of Exactly, yep. So, there are flaws, and in fact, there are many limitations. If we have more time, I can give you several limitations of science. But the main limitation is it's done by people just like us. Just when they put their white robes on, or whatever they wear, through their experiments. They don't automatically, they're not automatically infallible or shielded in any way from all of the failings that normal human beings are. That's scientific truth. If you believe in absolute truth, how many of you do? Absolute truth is eternal. 
as opposed to tentative. Absolute truth, and by the way, I can give you biblical verses for all of these, is unchanging. Didn't change. Scientific truth changes. Absolute truth is unlimited. Scientific truth is always limited. In fact, the more we know about science, the more we find out how much we don't know about science. Absolute truth is ultimate reality. Absolute truth is perfect. It's false. Absolute truth. It's not for man. It has what kind of a source? It has to have a omniscient source, and the only source of absolute truth is God Himself. In fact, even more than from God Himself, God is what? Omniscient. God is truth. And what we mean by that is God is absolute truth. It's only God that is eternal, unchanging, immutable, that's unchanging. He's unlimited, he's ultimate reality, he's perfect, and he's omniscient, he's the omniscient source. So absolute truth, John, uh, is it 632, I think, to the Father, God is truth, that's absolute truth. God the Father is absolute truth. So absolute truth is personal. God is truth. What about the Son? The Son truth? What do you say in John 14 and 6? I am the way, the truth, truth, and the life. Jesus is absolute truth. What does Colossians 3, what is it, 8 tell us? All of wisdom and knowledge are embodied in him. Jesus is absolute truth. If the Father is absolute truth, and if the Son is absolute truth, what would you expect? The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. This is absolute truth. First John 5. So, absolute truth is embodied by Godhead, or the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's personal. That is absolute truth. He, Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, alone, eternal, unchanging, perfect, but more. And His Word, by Word, is truth. God's Word is absolute truth. That's why we believe it is inerrant. Now, that doesn't mean we always understand it, and it doesn't mean that we always interpret it correctly because we are fallible, but we have access to absolute truth. His word is truth. That's John 17, 17. Jesus says, thy word is truth. That is absolute truth. And when we are dealing with issues of science, and we can find statements that relate to certain areas, and particularly these big areas like creation and the Genesis flood, we're dealing with absolute truth here. We may not understand it all, and we may not correctly interpret it, but at least it, we have it available to be able to, to study. And just to kind of complete it, the gospel is called the truth of the gospel. It is unchanging. That's why it's powerful. And why it has creative power that uh, God uses to generate art. And the Bible also says there's no truth in man, and Satan is the father of lies, and there's no truth in him. So that's, there is absolute truth in Postmodern world, you can point people to the fact that there is absolute truth, and his word is a revelation of himself and absolute truth, 
and we can trust it when it speaks to areas of history, science, psychology, music, art, whatever. Okay? The naturalist, his ideas have flaws. One of the flaws, in fact, a major one, is what's called uniformitarianism. That's an assumption. It's unprovable. It's a faith position. You know what uniformitarianism is? Um, Almost. It's close. The same, all, all natural processes that can be observed today were the same in the past. Exactly. That's a good statement of it. The present, here's a simple way of stating it, the present is the key to the past. So the law of gravity has always been there. Constants have always been constant. Processes that you can observe today have always been in operation. That's unbiblical. I believe at the fall of man, all of the natural realm was radically changed. It was affected by sin. That, in my biblical foundation for science, I don't know if we'll get into that. Try to show. And all of these are described in Genesis chapter 3. These physical, material changes in the, in the whole universe. So, uniformitarianism is unbiblical. Also, at the Genesis Flood, there's evidence in the text that indicates that the pre-flood world was different from the post-flood world. We're living under the Noahic Covenant. The Noahic Covenant is predominantly physical. It deals with the physical realm. The stability and the predictability of the laws of science and constants have been set as a result of the Noahic Covenant and now we can do science. Does anyone believe in the resurrection? Amen. Does the law of gravity have effect on the resurrection body? No, not at all. In fact, uh, second law, it's a reversal of the second law of thermodynamics. So that's a totally different realm. We're going to live in resurrection bodies, so everything is going to be totally different. The whole, na- the whole realm, natural realm. And we're going to live on Earth in resurrection bodies if you're pre-millennial. You believe in that. Kingdom, we're going to live in resurrection by the whole physical universe is going to be transformed during the kingdom. Uniformitarianism is This is the assumption that is made so you project processes that you can observe today and you can come up with billions of years. And you can come up with the, some of the conclusions of historical geology. So that's the foundation to a lot of. The interpretation that goes into why people believe there's no evidence for Genesis 1. Evolutionism is at the heart of historical science today. That's assumed, it's believed, it's, it's accepted as a fact. Humanism, in other words, man, man's ability to be able to come to write conclusions and to formulate ideas in his mind. These are the flaws. So humanism has all the flaws of mankind. And naturalism and the practice of most science, particularly historical science today, excludes revolution. Excludes the inspired source. So it's eliminating all that data that uh, is most important. Most important. And there's an anti-supernatural bias in evolutionary. Starting point, start, starting point, scientific truth, uh, naturalism forces Genesis, if you're a Christian, you force Genesis 1 into current science. 
but if you believe in absolute truth, Scripture is a framework to do good science. Yes. If you believe in Scripture, you use absolute truth, Scripture is a framework to do good science. In the starting point, in Russ Humphreys from Sandia Labs, this he publicly proclaims that this is how he begins his research. It's also John Baumgartner who's and there are several that are working there now to go to the Creation Science Fellowship that also begin from biblical worldview. The starting point is scripture. It sets a foundation for good science. So there's not opposition here, except there is opposition with some ideas, some theories of man, some reconstructions of past events of some scientists. But with true science, we should not be. So what we have here is a conflict between two religions. The religion of humanism, that's a religion, that's a philosophical position. And the biblical position of creationism. Humanism tends to be atheistic, it tends to be rationalistic, naturalistic, it tends to be evolutionary. It has uniformitarianism as its basis. And it ends as fatalistic. Creationism is theistic, which is based on God himself. Based on revelation of absolute truth. Tends to be supernatural. In other words, there's a creator, there's a being, a God that orchestrates history and events, and particularly those major events of the early chapters of Genesis. And we believe in creationism, not evolutionism. God created all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we believe that there is not uniformitarianism, but there have been catastrophic events that have shaped the natural realm, not just the spiritual realm, but including the natural realm. Instead of fatalism, we believe that there's design, and there's design for the future, and there's a plan. There's a gospel message to redeem not only mankind, but to redeem the entire creation itself. We're living in a fallen creation. So, when you do science, if you start off with presupposition A as an evolutionist, you look at the same data, and we're going to look at the same data. We're not going to change the data. We're going to look at the same data, same traces of the events. We can look at the same data. The evolutionist comes with his presuppositions and he has a set of glasses on that color his conclusions. He's going to come to interpretation A and it's going to be based on evolution and it's going to support his idea of evolution. We will come from different presuppositions. We come from the idea that there is a creator, there is a realm outside of the natural realm. We also believe that there's revelation that interprets the natural realm for us and makes scientific statements, not like what you find in a textbook, but statements all the same describing the natural realm. And we look at the same data with the aid of the revelation and we come to a different interpretation. We can see the fingerprint of God evolved. So that's the basic difference between what we will do as believers, whether we're in the sciences or not, or just teachers or people who explain to children or whatever. Uh, we're not changing the data. We're looking at the same data. We 
are interpreting it differently because we have more data than the evolution does. Real quick, naturalism, there's no spiritual realm, no God, no purpose, man answers to himself. This has severe implications. So the bottom of your sheet there, on the sheet. In fact, this is what happens in our culture. Our culture is naturalistic. Our culture is atheistic. Our culture has abandoned God. And what do you see as a result? Man is a result of a purposeless and materialistic process that did not have him in mind. He was not planned. That's an evolutionist. In fact, one of the most well-known evolutionists, Simpson. Materialism, purposelessness, not planned, no design. So people have no purpose. Suicide rates are high because people lack a purpose. Young people just don't see what's purpose in life. Why live? No absolutes, so you make up your own mind what is right and what's wrong. There are no rights and wrong, no absolutes. You see that all, all around us. People justify all kinds of lifestyles, simply alternative lifestyles. No responsibility, no accountability. Power to survive, that's Darwinism. Survival of this. So it's based on evolution, based on the mind of man, so today the, work, the earth is worshipped, that's environmentalism, new age, naturalism, socialism, Marxism, anarchy, Antifa, anyone heard of Antifa? Okay. Relative standards, no rights and wrongs, it's okay to abort, euthanasia is coming, homosexuality, promiscuity, and uh, transgenderism. So here's evolutionary humanism. You see the product in our culture. We talk a lot about that. The way we think, what we believe, has implications on how we live. Creationism, there is a non-material realm. God does exist. There is purpose to life. It comes from Him. And man is responsible and answerable and accountable to God. It is based on the Word of God with creation as a foundation, and we have a concern for the environment, but uh, we utilize it, and God has provided it. In fact, it's part of the creation mandate, and there's one. We do good science. We have a different view of government under God, and there are rights and wrongs. There are absolutes. There's value to human life. That's why we believe in abortion, and we believe in the value of the family as the heart of any culture and society. And the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked to the day of evil, so there is purpose. And the consequences, there is purpose and meaning. There are absolutes. There is accountability. And we're called to walk by faith in the creator of all things. Come back to our starting point. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the foundation for all this. And it's going to Thank you. Next week we'll talk about creation versus evolution. Thank you. Kevin Long, sir. You have this problem. Thank you. That we would have the evidence and message to help bring people closer to you. Their hearts closer to you. Lord, we just thank you for the time we've had together. Uh,